Hello, and welcome back to Manhattan Theatre Club's Beyond the Stage podcast. My name is Rachel Lin, and in this episode, I speak with Pulitzer Prize finalist and Obie Award-winning playwright, Rajiv Joseph. Rajiv's new play, King James, begins performances May 2nd at New York City Center. The production is directed by Kenny Leon and stars Chris Perfetti and Glenn Davis. I was so excited to speak with Rajiv because not only are his plays a huge inspiration for me, but he was also my freshman year writing seminar teacher. If you like the episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Here is Rajiv Joseph. Hi, Rajiv. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. I feel like I should start by letting everyone know that over 15 years ago, you were my freshman writing seminar teacher at NYU. That's right. I can't believe it was that long ago. Yeah, it was, I want to say it was September 2006. Does that sound right? I mean, I was there during that time. So that was your first year. That was what it was. Yeah. And you would make everybody bring a poem to class every week. An original poem. An original poem that they wrote and share it with the class that really like stuck with me. And I can't remember whether you told us why you had us do that or or you didn't. But is there a reason why you had your students do this? Well, I cribbed this from another professor of mine, a playwriting professor named Janet Nypris, who would have us sometimes bring in original poems, even though it was a playwriting class. Our class was an essay writing class. And I always think that sharing your writing is terrifying, especially with strangers or near strangers or classmates or whatever. And I think that part of the trick of teaching writing or having a class where everyone's writing in the class and sharing their writing is sort of to get past that sort of insecurity or that fear of sharing. And I think that in having people write poems, A, generally speaking, people will write pretty short pieces that were evocative, emotional, funny. It could be any kind of poem. It could be a haiku, you know? And I think it just, it was a way of getting people speaking their words out loud. And I always liked the way the room changed after everyone read their poems. The feel in the room, the vibe in the room became warmer. And so I think that's why I did that. When was the first time you shared your writing out loud? Like, when did you discover the fear and the experience. I think think it was probably like eighth grade or ninth grade was the first time that like maybe I read something that I I had written out loud and being a little nervous about that. I recently ran into this guy who I knew from high school that I hadn't been particularly close with, but like I remember in ninth grade I had read something and he complimented it and he said it was a really good piece of writing and I didn't even think about it as a good piece of writing. I just thought about it as like my assignment, you know, Mm. the teacher was making me read. And I think it was like this eye-opening moment. And I think that's for everyone, you know, we have these these moments in our life where we realize kind of surprisingly that we've done something good, (laughs) that we've created something interesting. We didn't even know we could. And I think that sort of awakening is really important. And I think, I think all the students that I had had that within them to a degree. And, you know, I'm, I'm someone who believes that everyone should write, 
whether it's in a journal or whether it's poetry or whether it's jokes, you know, I think that writing, keeping your thoughts in a notebook or, or writing things down when they occur to you is just a way of keeping your mind nimble and a way of kind of engaging with yourself. Mm-hmm. And when did you discover that you had a capacity to write plays? Not until I was in graduate school. I, I went to grad school at NYU when I was 28 to write screenplays. And when I was there, um, we had to take playwriting classes as well. I hadn't even seen a contemporary American play at that point in my life. I'd seen, you know, musicals, whatnot, Shakespeare, but I had not seen that. And uh, so, I, you know, part of going to NYU was being able to see a lot of the plays that were being staged during that time. And they had a great impact on me. And then I kind of wrote my first play that first semester or second semester of my first year of grad school. Did did the act of playwriting or screenwriting come naturally to you? Yeah. I had started out wanting to be a novelist, and that did not come naturally to me. And I struggled with it. And I still struggle writing prose, I would say. But then I started writing screenplays, and I was drawn to that form. And then when I went to graduate school, I started writing plays. I was drawn to that form. And I think that was a way of kind of discovering who I was as a writer. It took a long time. What about plays called to you? Was there something specific? I like in writing plays the problem of having a play, like the, the, the limitations of a stage, the limitations of a cast size, the attention you have to give towards creating something that can be done on stage. I think that's what drew me to it initially. But also, I loved the playwrights I was seeing. I loved the plays I was seeing at that time. Lynn Nowridge's play, in Intimate Apparel, was at the Roundabout. And Stephen Adley Gerges' play, Our Lady of 121st Street, was at the Union Square Theater. And when you saw those, did you feel like you wanted to emulate them or they, they spoke to you in some way and you felt like you can tell a certain story in this form? Yeah, I think it was, they were surprising to watch stories being told like that and actors breathing such life into it. And I was really moved by those plays and then by other plays that I was seeing at the time. But those two ones kind of stick out to me, especially Stephen's play had such a contemporary sort of vibe and language to it. And I was really moved by that. So it was, it awakened something in me and I felt challenged by it. And then the thing about being a playwright, you know, in New York, as opposed to a screenwriter is that there were all these places that you could develop your work. There's fewer places now, unfortunately. But when I got out of grad school, I was lucky enough to be part of the mentor project at Cherry Lane Theater. I was mentored by Teresa Rebeck and had a small production there at Cherry Lane. And then shortly after that, I started uh, contributing to the Lark Play Development Center, which was a huge part of my creative life for the last 20 years. Unfortunately, the Lark folded its tent right after the pandemic and is no longer really there in in its old version. There's like a lot of the programs have been kind of absorbed by other organizations, which is great. So in some ways it lives on. But um, at the time I I kind of, I, I, I entered into playwriting and actually at a a good time, you know, where there were these places and organizations that were kind of dedicated to helping people like me create plays. Mm. Yeah, you had the production pretty soon after, as you mentioned, your Cherry Lane 
project went up in like 2006, like right after grad school, pretty much. And then by 2010, you were a Pulitzer finalist for a Bengal tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. Is that right? Yeah. 2010 is when I was the Pulitzer finalist for that play. 2009 is when we had our world premiere of it. Is that what you like? Did you expect that having gone right through grad school? Like how, how was that whole journey? (laughs) I certainly, I certainly did not (laughs) expect that at all. It was a huge shock to me. But I, I worked on Bengal Tiger for a long, long, long time because I started writing it in grad school. I wrote it first as a 10-minute play. And nobody, you know, friends and teachers, no one really responded to that 10-minute play. So I kind of just put it in a drawer. But I would always go back to it and reread it. And then I started, and at the Lark, I started expanding it into a full-length play. And I developed it for several years. I mean, I, by the time it had its world premiere, I think I've been working on it for close to seven years, wow. six years and then, you know, we had a great production of it. And then we did it again the next year in Los Angeles. And I did more rewrites to it. I was continuing to change it. And then it became the Pulitzer finalist. And that was like, I was through the looking glass. I, did, I didn't realize that my play had even, you know, entered the sort of collective radar that allowed it to be considered for such an award. It was a shock. And it was, a, you know, it was a very exhilarating moment in my life. And... It still remains this wonderful thing that happened. And I think it gave my play a lot of exposure. And then, you know, it was part of the reason it allowed it to kind of come to New York to be on Broadway the following year, which had Robin Williams in it playing the tiger, which was another thrill, another exhilarating part of my life. That's amazing. And so along the way, like thinking back from that time to now, were there any moments of doubt or did it always feel like, oh yeah, I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing and it's pretty easygoing? Oh God, no, there's, there's always doubt, you know, there's perpetually doubt. There's still doubt. I have doubts every single day that doesn't go away. I don't think with success, but I think there's different types of doubt, right? There's the doubt that I'll ever write something good again, or that, you know, I got lucky or that creativity is like a well that can dry up and that you worry about those kind of things. And I think those are legitimate fears and things that that still kind of haunt me. I don't think that I ever was doubting that I had chosen the right path. I love writing and I love working in theater. And I also enjoy working in television and film, which I've been able to do as well. So I really feel like I found the right path for myself. But I remember like when Bengal Tiger was in its first iteration at the Kirk Douglas, before it was a Pulitzer finalist, before it had been reviewed, I had a couple other plays produced in New York at that moment, but this was my big one and it was the biggest venue I'd ever been in. And I had been working on it for close to seven years and I had worked on it harder than anything I'd ever worked on. I think I, you could kind of compare it to sort of like a a doctoral thesis at that point, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking if this fails, like if this just kind of comes and goes and doesn't get a second production and, no one really likes it, just like they didn't really like the 10-minute play, then I might have to consider writing in a different form because this is the best I can do at this point. Like, I can't do better than this. So if, if this is the best I can do and it doesn't go anywhere, then maybe I, should, maybe I need to think about whether I can do this or not. It was less about, like, being frustrated because I wasn't yet frustrated. I was, like, really being kind of cautious and careful with myself but also, like, wondering. I didn't know. I didn't know if I was going to have a career doing this. And and so, you know, I wonder if that had happened, what, you know, 
if Bengal Tiger hadn't gotten a second production, if it hadn't been a Pulitzer finalist, if it hadn't gone to Broadway, if if no one ever thought about it again, like it might have affected the way I went on with my life as a playwright. I might have decided, well, maybe I should try television. You know, mm-hmm. I moved to LA. Mm-hmm. I was able to do both, luckily. But those kind of doubts were certainly present in my head at the time. And you mentioned, you know, working on it harder than you've worked on anything. What does that look like? What does your process look like? I think it's like this. Again, I had the ability to work on it for so long because I, A, no one was producing it for a long time. But B, I, like I had resources like The Lark. And so The Lark provided me with workshops. They provided me with a bare bones production of the play. And that resulted in rewrite after rewrite after rewrite after rewrite. I mean, like hundreds and hundreds of rewrites of scenes and characters and acts. And, and I kept doing that through the production in Los Angeles and even the second production in Los Angeles. And so I think that play is about 120 pages long, but I probably wrote, <laughs> you know, 5,000 pages or 10,000 pages worth of material to get to that. And I haven't done that for every single play I've written. Mm-hmm. Most of my plays have a sort of like time period of like two years between starting writing it and like entering into a, a rehearsal period with it, but sometimes not. I mean, sometimes longer than that. And so it just depends. But like, yeah, that was that was my major work early in my career because because other people believed in it alongside with me, chiefly the lark. Do you write towards something or... Is there a question you're trying to answer when you're writing or a guiding principle? Yeah, I would say a question or something I'm curious about. You know, when I started writing Bengal Tiger, I was confused and interested in what was happening in Iraq with the war that the U.S. had started. And politically, I I knew that I was like, you know, against the war. But I also realized that like my, my knowledge of this war is so limited. I get my facts from media I'm not there. I'm not a soldier. I'm not a journalist. I'm not Iraqi. I never thought that I could write a play about that because it was so far from my sort of scope of experience. But then I read this article in the paper about this tiger that had been killed at the zoo by soldiers. And I was so fascinated by the absurdity of that article that I started writing a play from the perspective of the tiger. And then I had this sort of this way of reckoning with you know, what I imagined the world was like over there. And it became a kind of a a magical realist take. Uh, A ghost story is what I usually call it. More a ghost story than a war story. And so I was able to kind of like enter into that place. And I think that like for me, like I have like a play, like an idea or a, a setting or a theme that I'm interested in, but I have to find the entrance. I have to find the sort of like tiny keyhole through which to crawl and then I can start writing it. Otherwise, I'm kind of like banging my head against the wall, being like, well, what is this play? And so that article was a, was a keyhole. Does it make you nervous to write about things that you feel like you mentioned it being kind of outside of your scope? Yeah, I mean, it, it does. But I also feel like, like so much of my life has been kind of global in a way. Like my father's from India. I've tr- been traveling there my whole life. I spent three and a half years in the Peace Corps in West Africa after college. Through the Lark, I've traveled to Eastern Europe and Russia many, many, many times and worked with theater artists there doing translation works, doing workshops for writing. I've really, one of the great gifts that I've been given in my life has been the ability 
to travel so much and to to work in the theater in other countries like Romania and Russia and Portugal and Mexico. And in doing that, my, my horizons expand greatly. And so when I write, I sometimes feel like I'm writing for audiences that are well outside of the United States audience. And my play Guards at the Taj, which was produced back in 2015 at the Atlantic Theater, is a play of mine that I'm in many ways most proud of because it is the play of mine that's been translated into the most languages and has been produced in the most countries and really a very diverse array of countries. It's been produced in Iran, it's been produced in Japan and Korea and India and Russia several times. And so I, I love that I've written something that can translate and can be appreciated by people in vastly different cultures. Mm. Whereas King James, a play that I'm very proud of, I don't anticipate having that sort of global response. Really? Oh, I think it could. I mean, everybody loves basketball now. It's like basketball. And everybody true. loves LeBron. That is true. That is true. So maybe you're giving me hope, Rachel. Yeah, I think it could be. Um, and I definitely want to talk about King James really soon. But thank you for bringing up Guards at the Taj. One thing that stands out to me is this theme of violence in your plays. Like there's no shying away from gruesome, I mean, when you, you know, gruesome playground injuries. So yeah, um, there's no shying away from like this kind of tactile, bloody events happening and taking place on stage in your work. Can you talk a little bit about that impulse? Yeah, I mean, I think it it comes from different places within me, you know, and one of those places is the very sort of like foundation of my creative interest as a as a young person, which was that I liked violent movies. I liked gangster movies, I liked horror films, I liked the Indiana Jones movies, which are, you know, PG rated but are still gross and have things that make you squirm in your seat. And those sort of visceral reactions I, I enjoy putting on the stage because I feel like on stage they're even more visceral. Like you, you can you can really make an audience react to something, but it's it's I, I don't do it out of shock. I I I've tended to write about circumstances where violence is a, is a possibility, you know, or or violence has happened. Mm-hmm. I think that there's there's more past tense violence in my plays than present tense violence. Gruesome playground injuries, we don't see the injuries happen. We see the aftermath of those injuries. In Guards of the Taj, the second scene, which is a room full of blood and is, it can make every, every performance, some audience member would run out, grossed out. But we didn't see the violence that created that blood. We see the aftermath of it. Now, there's still violence. I mean, like, there is a behanding in Guards of the Taj that is pretty awful to watch. And in the opening scene of Bengal Tiger, a soldier has his hand bitten off by a tiger. Um, and then another soldier shoots and kills the tiger. So there's violence that is present. But I think that it interests me on a kind of gut level. And it, it always feels when, I'm, when I write something like that, that I'm sort of like attending to my roots as a person who liked B-movies, you know, mm-hmm. and genre films growing up. And I'm, and I'm drawn to historical stories, you know. And sometimes historical stories that persist, persist because of calamity. Mm, yeah yeah when i was reading your plays back to back i was like oh yeah like these plays are all feel to me like they're about our capacity as humans to hurt each other you know and the different ways we do that even in the ones that don't have violence like 
animals out of paper or all this intimacy. Speaking of your growing up, I've been to Cleveland Heights, but for the folks who haven't been there, can you tell us, you know, what are some of the defining characteristics of growing up in Cleveland? Yeah, and I would say it's more specifically Cleveland Heights, which is the suburb where I grew up and where King James takes place. Cleveland Heights is the near east suburb of downtown Cleveland, and it's an old community. It's a large, diverse community. I attended Cleveland Heights High School, which is a large public school that is you know, a really foundational part of who I am, I would say. And I really loved going to Heights. And it, it molded me in a certain way because it was such a large school. I mean, when I went there, I think there were about 3,500 kids that went there. And it's an incredibly diverse student body. And so is the suburb of Cleveland Heights. And so I grew up in a really diverse neighborhood. And as you know, a mixed race kid, that was great for me. And then alongside that, a great culture of arts here in Cleveland mm. and in Cleveland. When I was a, just a kid, I, I got a part in a professional musical at this outdoor theater called Kane Park. And Kane Park is this beautiful park in Cleveland Heights that has two theaters, um, a smaller one that does musicals and a larger one that does outdoor concerts in the summer. There's also a large arts festival that occupies a, a week-long part of the summer where different artists from all over the world come and, and display and sell their wares. It's a really incredible place. And I kind of grew up in Kane Park. I, went, I was in this play uh, as a 10-year-old. And then in high school and college, I worked there. Nice. And what was your role? I was a garbage man. I, I, I cleaned the theaters and emptied the trash and drove the trash to the dump. Oh, no, I meant but, in the musical. Oh, in the musical? Oh, I, I was a kid. I was just a kid. Oh, you were like uh, a kid in the ensemble yeah. or something. Yeah, I was just a kid in the ensemble, you know. But when I was being a garbage man there, I had to be there during the day, like, you know, in the evenings when the, when the shows were going on and I would like clean the bathrooms. And, and then when the shows were done, I cleaned the theaters and I'd empty the trash and I'd take it to the dump. But because I was there all that time, I ended up sitting and watching the shows every night. I had no inkling that I was going to have a life in the theater. I had no desire to be a writer at that point. But I realized that I was getting a sort of masterclass in musical theater every night because I'd watch and rewatch and rewatch and rewatch a play every night. And I, so like plays like Once on This Island, The Mystery of Edwin Drew, The Man of La Mancha, Into the Woods, wow. The Fantastics. Great, great plays that had a deep impact on me. Professional equity productions or community? Professional equity productions, yes. And I would get to know the actors and I'd get to know the director. And I'd watch, sometimes I would be watching that director direct because I was cleaning the house, mm -hmm. you know, and I was just paying attention. And it was, they were tremendous productions. And like, I didn't even know I was getting an education, but I was really interested in the theater. I was really interested in those plays and I would like memorize the songs and I would buy the soundtracks and I would listen to them, you know, kind of religiously. And I, and I, and I look back now and years later I was working on a musical and I was realizing, wow, thank God. Like I got that education that I didn't even know I was getting. That's amazing. And more specifically to growing up in Cleveland, I'm going to assume that not everybody listening to this follows sports necessarily. Um, and your play mm -hmm. does take place around professional basketball. So could you share what it, what does it mean to be a Cleveland sports fan? Yeah. So Cleveland's a small market, right? It's a small class town, and there are three major sports teams here. The Cleveland Browns football team, 
Cleveland Guardians baseball team and the Cleveland Cavaliers basketball team. And the city, like a lot of cities this size and of this character, really live and die by their sports teams in a way that I would argue places like New York and L.A. do not. Mm-hmm. Like I, there are great New York fans of the Yankees and the Knicks and the Giants and Jets and the Mets. But when their teams lose, I don't like feel like their lives just kind of go on. Whereas when our teams lose, which are almost all the time, there's like this mourning period that follows it. People are really upset. They're depressed. And when the teams are doing well, there's like this elation that kind of permeates the city. And there's nowhere you can go in Cleveland when one of the teams is doing well that you can escape that reality. It's everywhere. So growing up here, I was a sports fan and I lived and died by all those teams. And when LeBron James came to town in 2003, it was a huge deal. He was the biggest athlete to ever come to this city, at least in the modern era. And he was instantaneously great and led the Cavs to their first finals appearance. They didn't win, but he was like this incredible figure for the city. And then he kind of famously left Cleveland and broke everyone's hearts and everyone hated him. And then he came back to Cleveland and everyone loved him again. And then he actually won a championship and it's the only championship Cleveland's won in over 50 years. And he then assumed almost godlike status in the city. And then he left Cleveland again and he went to Los Angeles where he continues to play in his 20th year. So like this story of this athlete who started as an 18 year old, he's from the area. He's been in my life since I was in grad school. He's been playing basketball longer than I've been writing plays. And he's had this life with the city that has been tempestuous. You know, it's not like we've just loved him the whole time. So he's a literary figure from my perspective. He's well worth writing about because he's back and forth and there's a lot of emotional terrain to cover if you're going to write about LeBron's relationship to Cleveland. Mm, Yeah. And we didn't, you know, give listeners who may have not seen the play yet a little summary, but can you talk a little bit about the log line of King James? Well, King James is, is about two guys, unlikely friends in Cleveland. And it takes place over 14 years of their life and LeBron's existence in Cleveland. And four scenes in the play, just like four quarters of a basketball game. And they each take place at different times. Each scene takes place in a specific moment of LeBron's existence in Cleveland. So, you know, the first scene is when he's a rookie. And the second scene is the day that he decides to leave Cleveland and sort of like betray the city. The third scene is when he decides to come back. And the fourth scene is when he has won a championship in the city. And so the reason I wrote the play really is I have, because I'm a huge sports fan, I started to think about sports in this sort of philosophical way. And like, I wonder about it. I wonder why our hearts break when these teams win or lose. I wonder why we care so much about this stupid game. And I think there are lots of reasons. I think they have to do with like identity, your civic identity, being a Clevelander, being a New Yorker, being from any kind of region. But also like, and what my play gets at is that I think that there are a lot of young men, probably particularly in this country, but probably all over the world who have a hard time expressing themselves to each other in an emotional way. But I think that they can do that they have an access to that through the language of sports. And I believe that sports acts as a sort of code 
for some people, especially young men, in which they can actually talk about things that they wouldn't normally be able to talk about. And that's what we see with these characters of Matt and Sean over the course of these 14 years is that we see their relationship ebb and flow for different reasons, their success or their failures, their disappointments, their triumphs, but it all through the lens of sports and particularly LeBron. Reading this play, I'm really curious, in the process of writing it, was there anything that surprised you or that you learned about the nature of masculinity? <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, I, it, it made me think about the way that I talk about sports with my friends and why it matters to me as a person. And it made me wonder, I guess, and, and part of the reason I, why I wrote it was I wanted to write about those things and why, you know, when, when guys talk about sports, they can really bond and they can also get into such heated arguments on the drop of a pen that can really get angry and really, you start to wonder, well, what's really going on here, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I do it all the time with my friends and we can discuss, you know, who is a better player, LeBron or Michael Jordan, um, which is kind of a large, grandiose argument. We can also get angry over the fact that, like, a coach played one player over another player and why that was a good or bad idea. And when my adversary in this conversation tells me it was a good idea when I know it was a bad idea and he won't relent, even though he's wrong and I'm right, I really start to think that he's a bad person. And I have to tell him that because he's obviously so stupid that he would take a contradictory opinion to mine. And next thing I know, we're really angry at each other. And then I have to step back from that and be like, okay, what just happened? And I think that that's like sports is an irrational kind of arena, especially for fans. You know, when you are a fan, you have zero control over this thing that you care so deeply about. And so you respond to that zero control with irrationality. Hmm. That doesn't sound at all like, you know, our political landscape at this time <laughs> at all. <laughs> so don't know how that applies more broadly to uh, American life. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, to close up, to kind of bring it back to the beginning of our conversation, since I first knew you as a teacher, I'm wondering if there's a lesson that you've learned along the way that you would share with somebody who's like trying to build a life in the theater today? Hmm. You know, the lesson I have that I can share that I think I believe in is, and this is whether you want to be a writer or an actor or a director or a designer is to keep some semblance of a journal. I think that writing things down is important. And I think that you learn about what you want to learn about through writing. There's a mysterious thing that happens when you write. I find it's more mysterious when you're doing it, when you're writing by hand, using a pen and paper, as opposed to a keyboard. Something happens when your hand is going across the page and you're writing down your thoughts. Something happens to your brain. And I think that creativity is sometimes, not always, but sometimes unlocked. And ideas come to you connections are made, opposing ideas coexist. And um, 
I think that's kind of, to me, the key to creativity. Amazing. Thank you, Rajiv. Thank you, Rachel. It's great talking to you. That was Rajiv Joseph. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you buy your tickets for King James today if you haven't done so already. There's a discount code in the show notes. My name is Rachel Lynn, and I will see you at the theater.